Good morning. It's great to see all of you here this morning as uh, we're, we're out of, at Olive Branch here at Guests. We've been working through the book of John, and we're going to go back to that. But I really want to encourage all of you who are here today. And, you know, sometimes in our lives we get super busy and we kind of skip day, weeks and weeks of church and things like that that can happen. And we understand that. But we want to really invite you and encourage you to be here for the next three weeks coming up because we're going to be diving into our vision and where we're headed in the new season here at Olive Branch. And there are a lot of really neat things that have been working on and the staff and with the elders and uh, wanted to kind of bring those and we're going to be presenting those for really the next six months and really where we're aiming and where we're going. So I want to encourage you guys, that's a time we really ask you to be here so that we can focus in together and be on the same page. And besides, we miss you when you're not here and you really miss out on a lot of the information. Sometimes you're just not clear. Did we talk about that? Yeah, we did, but it was on a week you weren't here. So I encourage you to be here for those three weeks and uh, we can get moving in that way. But let's just go ahead and pray. And we will uh, dive into John here as soon as we're done. Father, thank you. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to open your word and to know you more. That you would send your son, that he would bear our sins, that we might have that relationship with you. So that, God, we may uh, bring that knowledge to others and you be glorified even more. So we just pray that you would just enable us this morning to take in your word, to be challenged by it, and then to go and live it out as we go into our neighborhoods. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you know, I was a youth pastor for many, many years here at Olive Branch, and uh, during that time period, we had these things called think tanks. Think tanks were an opportunity for students to gather together on Sunday morning in, in small classroom settings. We taught everything from apologetics all the way down to just kind of practical living and theology. And um, it was really interesting. A lot of conversations about like the the problem of evil, or how do you know God exists, or what is the gospel, all these kind of conversations. But invariably, after these scintillating, amazing conversations, students would get up, and they'd be ushering out, and I'd be sitting there, and one kid would always walk behind me. And for some reason, as they walked behind me, I would hear this, oh, what's oh? And I, of course, I'm kind of paranoid, like, what does oh mean? And then they would stop and tell me, you're getting like a, a bald spot back there, man. <laughs> and of course, I'm just like, thanks for the info. And after a while, I was like, ah, it's always been that way. It's a little thin on top. My grandfather, da, da, da. And, and, and 10 years later now, you know, 15 years later, I have to admit, yes, I have a bald spot. Okay, stop telling me. Because one of those kids who was one of those kids that stopped one day and said, oh, you have a bald spot, is the guy who cuts my hair now. <laughs> and I'll sit down with him, and, he, and Andrew will literally look and goes, it's getting bigger. And it's just like, thanks, man. He already says I have the worst hair on the planet, which is bad enough. But when your, bar, when, your, when your hairdresser tells you you have the worst hair on the planet, you've got a problem. But the reality is that I can't tell. So I'll go home and I'm like, I got a bald spot? This is ridiculous. So I don't know if any of you guys have done this, but I'll get into my bathroom and I'll open the mirror up and I'll take the medicine cabinet and turn it at an angle so I can kind of, you ever done, am I the only guy who's done this? This is sad. Um, and trying to see like, how big is it? Where is it at? And so I'm sitting there with that angle. And the reason you have to do that, to be quite honest, is this is called a blind spot, not a bald spot. You can't see back here. So you're supposed to not tell me what's going on. But the reality is that we all have blind spots. And your car has a blind spot. Don't change lanes without looking in your blind spot, making sure that it's clear. In life, we have blind spots. 
Let's, let's, let's face it, in your marriages, there are many different kinds of blind spots. In fact, they've done studies where they ask men, rate your marriage on a scale of like one to 10. And the men are always like, well, it's like at an eight. And then they ask the women, the, the, the women, rate your marriage according to one to 10. And the women are like, yeah, it's like a four. And the men are always rating it way higher than the women are. And that's because us men, we have larger blind spots than the women do. We assume things are great. And we're just not examining all the details that they're examining. We have blind spots in our character. I mean, how many times have I sat there with my kids going, don't do that, they're not allowed to do that, only to catch myself doing that later because they got it from me. I'm blind to it. We're blind to many of our character attributes. We're blind to many of the things that we do in our lives. This is just true of who we are. But Jesus is gonna take it to the next level. He's gonna challenge us in a way that we need to hear. And it's not necessarily something that's easy to hear, but it's something we need to hear. And, it's, and it comes out in John chapter nine. So why don't you grab your Bibles? We're gonna open it up to John nine. And we're gonna, if you don't have a Bible, they're available under the seats. You can open it, um, the one on the seats to page 895. It'll be right there with us in John chapter nine. And just for some context, Jesus has just been preaching at these, at the, Feast of Tabernacles. He's been at this giant festival that, is, that happens annually for the Jewish people where they gather booths around Jerusalem and they kind of do these tents and they hang out and they go to the temple for some amazing celebrations. It was the most popular of the time period, so the crowds have swelled. Now, Jesus just finished preaching on that final day. He's turned around and he's left the temple and he's headed on his way to wherever he was going. And that's where we pick up. Verse 1. <laughs> As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples, who have not been in the picture for a while, they're now back, they asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so suddenly the scene is very just fraught with all kinds of interesting difficulties. Jesus is walking by and there's this man who is, who is blind. Apparently he either declared he was born this way so as to gather more sympathy, to gather more alms, or he was so well known people knew this guy was born blind, but somehow he becomes the center of attention. You can imagine this entourage walking by, just crowds of people, and suddenly the man's like, alms, alms, I'm born blind, please help me. And these people just stop. So is he like uh, the sinner when he was in the womb and that's why he's blind now? Or did his parents sin and he's blind? Can you imagine just walking up being that gauche and having that kind of a conversation right in front of somebody who's blind? That's exactly what the disciples do. They, they, don't, they, they dive right into the biggest theological question of their time period. Why in the world is there suffering? Why is this guy suffering? What's the point of suffering? Did he sin or did his parents is that odd? I mean, this, are they saying that he had a previous life? No, they actually argued at this time period that babies in utero could sin so grievously that God would punish them and you would be born with this kind of thing. Does, does that sound weird? It does sound weird to us until we start to realize we're not much different when it comes to things like suffering. I mean, how many of us, when we wind up in a place of suffering, maybe it's your marriage is splitting, Maybe you've lost a child. You can't have children. Maybe you can't get married. You can't seem to find that person. Maybe you're getting older and you just feel like things are, aren't working and there's regrets. When you go through forms of suffering, I guarantee you somewhere in your mind you're asking yourself, what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? What would have changed if I had done this? 
And we associate as Americans, we're very pragmatic. We're very much, you do these things, you get these outcomes. And so we assume as Americans, if I do these things, these good things should happen. And so I have bad things, I must have done something bad or wrong back here. It's the exact same thing. They just changed the words. See, they felt like, no, no, you, you got these bad things happening. That means you must have done something bad for God to deliver you into this suffering. And so they wanted you to have a cause for every problem. Hindus have dealt with it differently. They believe in karma. You know, what you did in a past life affects your, your present life. We have this cause and effect mentality to our suffering that is in every culture. And what's interesting is the disciples step up to this situation and they ask this question, why is this man in the state that he's in? Was it his parents' fault, his fault? What's going on here, Jesus? And the debates of the culture was always leveled at sin. But Jesus is going to take this, he's going to deal with this, and he's going to do something pretty amazing. Because first of all, right here, Jesus is going to move into healing this blind man. But before he does so, he's going to give us a little bit of context. Jesus answered them. He said, it's not that this man sinned, so it's not his fault, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. That's one of his famous I am statements. He's already stated this before, that he's the light of the world. Now he's reiterating it. He's not just saying, I'm a bright, billowing light bulb. He is saying, I am the knowledge of the world. I am that which makes you aware. I am that which you see by. And seeing has got more than just sight. It has knowledge associated with it. And so Jesus dives in. He says, look, this guy's suffering has nothing to do with what happened in the past. It has everything to do with what God's going to do through him. And I want to stop there for a second, because first of all, God is not afraid to accept that he he has made someone blind, or that he has made somebody deaf, or he has made somebody mute. In fact, further back in the Bible, if you you rewind all the way back to a man named Moses, and those of you who may be new to your Bibles, in the second book uh, called Exodus, and Moses is speaking with God. And as Moses is working through this conversation with God, about whether he's supposed to go set the Israelites free. He says, I'm not a good speaker. He's making all these excuses. And finally, God gives him this. He says, then the Lord said to him, who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, I may not be comfortable with God bringing about suffering in our lives, but God seems to be comfortable stating he brings about suffering in our lives. And so I want to start there. I want to start with, yeah, some of us were running around in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of what you're going through, the loss of your, your spouse or your loved one in death, and you're going, you know, what did I do? What went wrong? What could we have done differently? And God's going, those aren't the right questions. <clears throat> the right questions don't involve the what could have. And this landed home in my home. Um, I told you a few weeks ago about my daughter who's beginning to really struggle with something in her, in her diet or gut. I just, she was in pain. And um, we, we've come to the, through the doctors to have a conclusion that she's, they said she has Crohn's. Now, Crohn's is a pretty rough diagnosis. And we've watched her now go through a couple holidays where she can't eat things. And, and she's doing really well right now, so th- praise God, just so you guys know. But in the middle of it, she'll have these episodes where she felt like she, she would describe it as somebody stabbing her in the gut. 
and, and she would be buckled over and, and shivering in pain. In the middle of her tears, she'd look at me and say, Daddy, why is God putting me through this? And in everything, our minds are running to not why is God, well, what's the purpose? It was more of what did I do to end up here? And so we, we, were, we were like oh, trying to figure that out. And after a while, you start to go, wait, wait, this has nothing to do with how you got here or why he's, put, he's not punishing you. And so we started to talk about God wants to do something through you. God wants to bring this to a bigger conclusion. God doesn't want to leave it here. You see, it wasn't her fault. It wasn't these things. Yes, God's allowed this into her life for a purpose. And the point I think Jesus is getting at here is that God shows himself in suffering. God reveals who he is in suffering. Some of us like, I don't like that idea. But stop and think about it for a minute. My daughter is, has been shown a lot about who God is in her suffering, but that's biblical. Go back to Joseph. Joseph was a man who did no wrong. His brothers hated his guts, sold him into slavery. He winds up in slavery, does no wrong, is falsely accused and thrown into jail. Prisons are not pretty places in the ancient world. He suffers for over two years in that location until he's finally pulled out. And then he suddenly he's in charge of Egypt. See, God, it took all that suffering for a purpose to bring him to a place where he could be the provision, not just for Egypt, but also for Israel and the rest of the world. And the reality in that story is that God showed his power and might and ability through Joseph's suffering. Look at Job. Job's is a mysterious book in which you have God, the devil, appearing before God and going, you know what, if um, Job, you were, took Job's, all these hedges and protections away from Job and he really entered into suffering, he'd curse you and God goes, I'll take you up on that. And he allows the devil to take all that away and suddenly Job falls into the midst of this deep, dark, horrific depression, suffering and struggle. He has all these friends who walk around going, well, God wouldn't put you through this unless there was some kind of sin. Sounds like the very same conversation. And they pick and prod and examine every angle of who Job is. And in the end, Job doesn't curse God, but he sits there in the midst of his suffering, cursing himself, and the answer doesn't come in words. The answer suddenly appears in the presence of God himself. And it was the suffering that was to guide Job to the place where God's appearance and presence was the answer to his suffering, not the answers to why it happened. And if we really struggle that suffering reveals who God is, then we're going to struggle with the cross. Because Jesus, who had never sinned and never earned suffering, found himself hanging on the cross, bearing the sins of humanity. And in that very act, he revealed that God was just and that God was loving. That God had come to save us and to judge us. That all of the matrix of who God is is bound up in the sufferings of Christ. And we learn who God is. God shows himself in suffering. C.S. Lewis learned this. C.S. Lewis is the author of the books The Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you've seen some of the movies. Maybe you've read some of his other books, like Mere Christianity. He's a pretty prolific author from the 1950s about Christianity. He'd been an atheist. He became a Christian. And he came into this relationship with, a, with an American woman who uh, she was dying of cancer, and he married her to, to support the family. And in that, he did. He fell deeply in love with her, and he grieved her loss so greatly. He even had to, he's a thinker, so he had to think his way through the loss, and he wrote this book, A Grief Observed. And in the midst of that book, he said this, you know, God whispers to us in our pleasures. Some of us are when it's good, God's whispering to us. We don't always hear him, but then it says, but he, spe he speaks in our conscience 
And we know that when we're doing wrong, he convicts us, but he shouts in our pains. His megaphone, it, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now God uses suffering. God wakes us with suffering, sometimes lifelong suffering, sometimes moment, momentary intense suffering, sometimes small sufferings to shout to us, this is not how the world is to be. This is not how it was intended. I am wanting you to hear me. I am here. There is no answer you'll find on earth. You need to seek it beyond. And it becomes this reality that Jesus is going to lean into. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the one that gives you the knowledge in the midst. See, my daughter, when she's sitting there struggling, she wants to know, what is God going, why did I do this? But then she switched to, well, what, what does God want to do through it? And you know what? I can't answer her question. Because the, there are no words that answer those questions. We can speculate what God is doing. We can look back and speculate what he has done. But it is only time and God himself that can tell you why, and can tell you what. And so we have to let time go on. In fact, what's beautiful about what Jesus does is he doesn't give him any more words. He says, I'm the light of the world, and then he acts. Notice what he does. Verse six, having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And I just want to pause right there for a second. Put yourself in the blind man's shoes for just one second for him. Here's this crowd that walks up in front of him, starts having a theological conversation over his state of life, and then he hears, <laughs> I mean, how much spit does it take to make enough mud to rub into somebody's eyes? But he makes enough to make, needs it, takes it, and then he's sitting there going, what's he doing? What's he doing? Oh, whoa. You know what got in your eye. If you've ever gotten any kind of dirt in your eye, it's painful. It doesn't feel good. And here's Jesus rubbing mud right into it. It says anointed. That means he caked it on. It's not like just a little bit. He's letting it just kind of drip down. It's muddy mess. And anybody find that gross? I think that'd be nasty. And this guy's like, what are you doing? He's like, okay, get up. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And he went and he washed and came back seeing. Another very short sentence with a lot of drama probably involved there as he's trying to navigate a crowd of people at a feast time to a pool that is the most popular pool in the city in the south. It's going about a mile and a half, maybe down through the city. Somebody leading him and he's kind of wandering around. People are going... Can I wipe that out of your face? You know, he's like, no, no, I got to go to the pool. And this is a pretty intense situation, but he gets there, he washes it off. What was that like? As he begins to splash the water and for the first time, fragments of light break in. And as he gets the dirt out and he starts to see, suddenly he's looking around and the first thing he sees is a bunch of people bathing at a pool. That's a nice first sight, but you know, that's the idea. Here's the trick. It's not that he saw necessarily. They have done plenty of surgeries in our current time period where they've given people sight through, through various transplants and things. But the difference is that he just didn't see, he understood what he saw. People who've had these transplants oftentimes don't understand what an object is until they get their hands on it. Because they see with their feelings. They see with their, their sense of touch, not with their eyes yet. And so they're having to retrain. They have to learn and identify things and how to see. The man has none of that transfer. He's instantaneously capable of seeing and understanding. Because Jesus isn't just the healer of the blind. He is the light. He is understanding and sight. 
In fact, we'll see how much knowledge plays into the rest of this text now that the man can actually see. So he comes back seeing, and the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is him. And others said, no, but he's like, it's like him. It's his doppelganger, right? He kept saying, no, I'm the man. Can you imagine this guy's now having to convince everybody? No, no, it's me. I can see. I really can. Yeah, you look like him, but you don't look like him. There's like dirt. You got these dark circles under your eyes. Oh, that's the mud, man. It's me. Probably pumped and excited about this situation. He's jumping up and down. And they're looking at this going, well, is it, is it, is it not him? And then something weird happens. They turn to him and they say, well, okay, how were your eyes open? He explains what happened in verse 11 and verse 12. He says, well, where is he? Where is this Jesus who did this for you? That is the most ridiculous question I've ever read in the entire Bible. Can I just be honest? Here's a blind guy who's had mud wiped into his eyes, told to go wash, and he comes back and they're like, well, where'd he go? How am I supposed to know? I didn't see him leave. I didn't see him. What, what is this kind of, his friends are real smart. But the point is, <clears throat> they're freaked out. They grab him, verse 13 says, the Greek says that they, br- this says they brought him, but the word in the Greek is they grabbed him in a sense to lift him and drag him away. They're concerned about something. They have now grabbed under his arm or they've lifted him up. They're leading him to the Pharisees because now they can't find Jesus and something's really bugging them about this. So they lead the man to the Pharisees. In verse 14, here's why it's a problem. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. For those of you who aren't up on like, what what is this about? The Jewish people celebrated the Sabbath day. It was the seventh day on Saturday in which they would rest. They would do no work. The Pharisees had created so many laws around the Sabbath. You basically just need to kick back and do nothing for a whole day. One of the laws actually indicated you are not allowed to make mud. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So Jesus breaks the Pharisees' rules and the Pharisees are like the spiritual gurus of the time period. So the people are freaking out. They're going, just cut out the rules. Just cut out the rules. Take him. Well, the Pharisees figured this out. They drop him off of the Pharisees. Pick him up, drop him off, and the Pharisees began to ask him questions. Verse 15 how he had received his sight. And he said to them, well, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees again asked him how he, they, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. Not speaking of the man, the blind, formerly blind man, he's talking about Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such the signs? There was a division among them. Notice their, their indication of who they think Jesus is already. They think he's a sinner. He doesn't fulfill the Sabbath. He broke our rules. He's outside of our category. Sinner, period. Leave him, put him in the category, which means there's another problem. If Jesus is a sinner, who is this guy trying to tell us that he's been made able to see? And so the intensity of the situation grows. Verse 17. So they turned to the, said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? since he's opened your eyes. And he said, he's a prophet. Oh, we got it. What they're doing is they're digging for his motivations. Whose side are you on here? We don't believe that you really were blind. Who do you think this guy is? Oh, he's a prophet. Oh, we see. Okay, we got this down. This guy's a charlatan trying to promote this Jesus dude. We know he's a sinner. So look at him lying to us. And the reason I say that is verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. 
until they called his parent, the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And the parents go, we, well, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Notice how many times the word no shows up now. But how he sees now, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. Now catch this, his parents are drug in. This is probably the first time this guy's ever seen his parents in physical presence, in the middle of a trial. And he's sitting there going, oh my gosh, these are my parents. And they're going like, has this guy really been blind? Tell us. And you know what? If you side on the wrong side, we're going to kick you out of the synagogue. That's what the next verse says. His parents were freaked out. They had said these things. They didn't defend their son because they feared the Jews. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So they kind of just go, we don't know, ask our son. He's an adult, he can handle it. And in the midst of all of this tension, they're threatened with the loss of their identity. This young man had been born blind. He was blind, a Jewish blind man. But now he could see. Now he's just a Jewish man. And now in the midst of this conversation over his blindness, he's threatened to lose even that. The implication of the intensity of the social pressure is huge in this text. They hear this man is sitting there feeling the pressure in the way to the synagogue and his leaders to tell them what they want to hear. Yet that's not what he does. Does this sound a lot like our culture? They want to pressure and they want to tell you to tell them what they want you to say. They want to hear it from you. They want you to agree with them. They want you to stand with them. They want you to, to shout what they shout. Otherwise, you're going to be out. You're going to be a labeled group that we don't like. It's the same thing. And so how this man stands is, is so instrumental for us as Christians because of what he does. He begins here. So for the second time, verse 24 says, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. That term, give glory to God, is actually swearing him under an official oath to repent of his sins. And these guys believe he is lying. Okay, so he was blind. Now he saw, well, obviously it wasn't Jesus. This is some kind of gag. What's this guy's problem? Repent now. Tell us what your lie is immediately. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, I now see. So repent of your position, people. You're on the wrong side of history. You're a sinner. That's exactly what they said. I'm going to categorize you in the, fail, the losing side of the team. Now, change your story. The man just says, look, I can only tell you the facts. I was blind, and now I see. So instrumental for us because what I want to show you is the power of the testimony that points to the power of Jesus is actually powerful. <clears throat> if you're a Christian, whether you were born into a Christian home or not, you have a testimony. Don't think just because you were raised in a Christian home means that, yeah, you got a really lousy testimony. There's a power in the story that God has given you. There's a power in the story that God has led you to know him. There's a, and you should be able, and I, I want to challenge that we should be able to get that story down into a simple sentence. 
See, at Olive Branch, we want to be the kind of people that honestly, we are doing what Kevin said. Guys, I want to encourage you. Just get to know two households, two neighbors on your street over the next three months. If you, if you live in a place where everybody's Christians and you're like in a monastery and, and you, you don't know anybody like that, you know, do it at work. That's fine. But the point is simply that, that just engage with, with the hospitality and the love that we're called to give to those who are our neighbors and love on them. Because one day as you love on them, as you care about them, as you invite them into your home, as you hang out with them and you, and you talk, one day the curiosity factor may grow enough that they will ask you, why are you a Christian? And once that day does come and you've cared for people well enough and you've loved them like we ought to, and they ask you, I hope you're ready with the simplest of responses. This man was able to just sum it up. I was blind, but now I see. And Jesus is the fault. He's the cause. And I want to encourage you, because if you can do that, it opens up doors. I sat down, I've wrestled with this all week, and I think the bottom line is I just kind of landed on, I, I was empty, but now I'm full. And you think, well, what in the world does that mean? I was empty, guys. In high school when, and in, in junior high, I had great parents, I had a, a good family, but man, I had to get filled from something. There was a value lack in my soul that was so deep that I had to get approval. I had to gain it somehow. And so no matter what I entered in, I strove to be the best at it. I wasn't always, but most of the time, I was at least getting to the upper elite groups of whether it was my grades or whether it was in the, in the music or the drama or, the, or you know, the fact that I was a letterman for four years and set school records and blah, 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 blah. I don't really care about all that now because that was all attempts to get filled up. It was all an attempt to, to feel worthy. And I'll tell you what, I met Christ my senior year of high school. I just always felt filled. I've always been filled. Oh, sure, there are months that go by in my life, even as a pastor, and I, and I have to admit this, where I'm not like really into my quiet time. I'm like, yes, I'm with Jesus and it's holy. And, and, and I struggle with that sometimes. Even in those months where I'm struggling and where God should be so far from me because I'm not engaged in the word of God as much as I should in my own private time, God has still filled me. He's still faithful. This isn't anything that I've done. It's something he did to me. And I can't explain it. I was empty, insecure, and broken, and suddenly I was filled. Sure, I struggle back and forth at times, but the feeling never goes away. I know somebody who summed it up to me just after first service. He said, I don't know how to explain this. How do I summarize this testimony? Because it's weird. I'm like, okay, hit me with it. He's like, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and I went into the phlebotomist, and they were about to take my blood, and she and I told her, she's like, what are you in here for? She's like, I have pancreatic cancer. And she yelled at me, I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. And he's like, uh, not a Christian, okay? Goes to the doctor who doesn't have pancreatic cancer. How do you sum that up? And people, he's like, I don't know how to say that. It sounds so weird that this nurse yelled at me and rebuked this thing. I'm like, Jesus just spit in the mud and rubbed it in some guy's eyes. You don't think that's weird? God does incredible things. We need to be ready with a simple way to explain it. Because guess what? When you have a situation where all the pressure's on, sometimes what you have to do is just stand on what Christ has done for you and tell the truth. These guys don't know what to do with it. They're like, uh, well, okay. Huh, you were blind, but now you see. Um, 
Verse 26, they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How, how did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I love this, it's so snarky. I told you already, and you wouldn't listen. What part of, and this is how the Greek should be translated, I like it better. What part of the story do you want me to tell you again? It's such a sneaky way to do it, because if I have to tell you what part of the story, obviously you heard me. He's just showing them that they're not listening. What, what part of the story do you want to hear again? And do you want to also become his disciples? Poke, poke. Because I sure do. When we know, conniption fit, about to happen. Verse 28, you are his disciple, but we're his disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes and Jesus just told them a chapter earlier. And he opens my eyes. Look, we know that God does not listen to sinners. In fact, you just said that. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened a man's, uh, the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This dude's schooling the Pharisees. He like flipped on, he's like, I got the light, I'm putting the hat on, I will now be your professor. Sit down and listen, pupils, because you guys had it all messed up. Well, that just, that, that just tweaks them in the wrong ways. They just look at, you were born in utter sin. In other words, we've already concluded you were born blind because you sinned. You're a sinner. You, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out of the synagogue. Not only loses his identity as a blind man, he lost his identity as a Jewish man. Barred from his own faith. Because he stood for the facts. Here's the thing. When we go out and we begin to engage people... We need to realize there are going to be Pharisees out there. And I just want to be soft here for a second for some of you who are our guests and may not be a Christian. This is a difficult thing to hear in some ways because the blind spots we were talking about, I'm pointing at my head, blind spots that we're talking about are larger than we thought. Jesus is really saying that we were all born blind. The reality here is that our pride shows we are blind. We can't see what God reveals. We have a spiritual blind spot when it comes to God. So large, we, we don't even realize it. We are like, when we talk about sin as Christians, we forget we lived in such sin, we didn't even know it was sin. It's like a fish explaining water. We just don't even realize a life beyond it. That's blindness. These Pharisees had such a foregone conclusion. Jesus was a sinner. He's not following our rules. He hasn't figured it out. It didn't matter that a miracle was in his face. They wouldn't believe it. And I know there are some of us out here who have said in our lives, I wouldn't believe unless I saw a miracle. I would beg to differ. That if men who had it attested to their face and loved a new God from their Old Testament couldn't believe a miracle in their face, we will find excuses around it. It's far less about what we think we know. And it's far more about what we just don't know. We don't know. We're blind to it. And here, this man acts like, like Jared, our, our youth, youth pastor, told us a story. And he said, there was a day his wife was sitting there reading a book and as she was reading, she's, she's finished, she's like, I just got this massive headache. I can't go to bed. I'm, she had all these other symptoms showing up throughout the next few weeks. And he's like, 
this is really odd. I, I know what these are. And he started thinking about it. He's like, when I was a kid, I get these headaches. I'd have this stuff. And he's like, he goes up to his wife and said, babe, I don't think you got a brain tumor or anything else like that. Because she was kind of worried about it. He's like, I, I, you need glasses. He's like, no, I don't need glasses. I see fine. And she went to the doctors and lo and behold, it wasn't, a, it wasn't huge, but she, was, she had eye strain. It was causing major problems and she needed glasses. And Jared shared that because he's like, look, it takes somebody who's been there to be able to point it out. Or somebody who's outside of the scenario to identify it. For us living so thickly in sin, so, so consumed by it, we need something that is not consumed by the darkness to break in. We need pure light. And Jesus broke in who has no sin to show us what we otherwise couldn't understand. And he revealed to us that we were blind. In fact, this is explicitly what he does in this final scene. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that he, they'd cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man answered, uh, who, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You've seen him. I love that. You've seen him. It is, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus came to reveal the blindness, so those who were so sure they saw in their pride are shown they see nothing. And those who knew in their humility and their brokenness they don't see anything could then see. The Pharisees that were nearby heard this and they said to him, are we also blind? In verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. <coughs> A simple point is this. Jesus reveals that if we think we see and we think we're guiltless, we think we're fine, we're actually just blind and guilty. We're still stuck in our sin. We're still swimming in that very thing we don't understand. But if we know we're blind and we see, we'll be freed because we understand we humble ourselves. And I'll be quite honest, this may be a painful thing to hear that, that the Bible is telling you that you're blind, so blind, you're so immersed in sin you can't even see it and you're blind to what God wants to do in your life that you can't see it. That feels painful. In fact, if you, I would be honest, if you're not a Christian, you're looking at me saying, you are an arrogant person, sir, to think that. And I just want to say time out. I'm not trying to be arrogant. See, I didn't earn this, and nobody earns it. We didn't figure it out. And I get it so easy to hear a testimony of, I was blind, but now I, I see. I was empty, but now I'm filling up. I'm glad that worked for you, sir. But you don't understand. I tried of all the things. It's not that it worked for me. I didn't do anything. He changed me. The blind man was changed by what Christ did. And you can't just go, well, I'm glad that works for you. Because it's not about what works for us. It's about a gift given. A gift of sight to see our sin that we can turn and repent. And maybe today, that's the gift you need. And the cry you need to have is, God, give me sight so I can see. Show me yourself. 
Because you know what, I agree, it is so painful to discover this, but it is in our pain, in our suffering, that God reveals himself. And I want to encourage you that perhaps you need to push into that pain that God would show himself. And that perhaps some of us as Christians, we need to realize, yes, it's painful to talk and reach neighbors that we're scared or or nervous about, but it's time for us to press into that pain to love some people they may hear and know God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you would um, whisper to us in our pleasures, speak to us in our conscience, but shout to us in our pains. And Father, as we seek to know you more, would you reveal yourself to us, even in the midst of our suffering? And God, for some people here today, their suffering is, is the fact that they don't know that they're suffering. And I pray that you'd give them sight. I pray that the wrestling match that's begun in their souls with you as, as they have to understand what it means to be a sinner would, would lead them to you. And I pray that, God, you would bless all of us to love people well, no matter what the cost, that they may know you and you would reveal yourself to them. Aid us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.